Hi, and welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sandlind, and Talking Migration is supported by the Immigration Research Group and the Department of Politics at the University of Sheffield. One of the key policy goals of President Trump has been to curb migration from Mexico. As a consequence, not only has border controls become more repressive, a trade war nearly erupted between the US and Mexico. But how is this received at the Mexican end? What policies have actually been agreed with or imposed on Mexico by the Trump administration? And what happens with the rights and safety of asylum seekers? With me to answer these questions is Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Programme at the Centre for International Policy. I started by asking Laura Carlson who is migrating in and out of Mexico and whether there have been any recent changes in these migration patterns. We've seen tremendous changes in the migratory flows through our region, Mesoamerica, that is to say Mex- Central American, through Mexico into the United States lately. One of the biggest is that this used to be labor migration principally, and it used to be mainly from Mexico to the United States. So they were single males um, looking for a way to make a living, many times displaced by projects or by free trade itself after the free trade agreement, which increased migration to the United States. Then just in recent years, it first came to the public attention in 2014 when the U.S. media began to talk about the number of unaccompanied minors who were arriving on the U.S. border from Central American countries. And when we say Central American countries, we're talking primarily about what's known as the Northern Triangle, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. So there was a big kind of scandal about the unaccompanied children arriving there. And at first, President Obama at the time said that we needed to have a humanitarian response to this. But in the end, what it ended up being was a further crackdown, particularly with the help of the United States government on Mexico's southern border. There was greater militarization, uh, greater attempts at contention rather than compassion in terms of the way that this migration was treated. In effect, the unaccompanied migrants, I mean minors, and the increase in migration from Central America had already been going on for a while. And it just began to build up over the years until what happened the end of last year is uh, on October 16th there was a call to create uh, to form a group that would leave San Pedro Sula. San Pedro Sula is one of the highest uh, migrant ex- expulsion places in the in the country of Honduras <coughs> because of the high rates of crime there and also because of the poverty, but they have a huge problem with the homicide rate and with uh, gang violence in San Pedro Sula. And about 160 people, which was far more than had arrived before, uh, turned up at the Pedro, San Pedro Sula bus station to get together and, and move toward the northern border. As this caravan, as it came to be called, went through Honduras, and went through Guatemala, it began to collect more and more people until there were several thousands by the time it got to the Mexican border. It was the first time we'd really seen that kind of migration in a large group. Uh, And the reason basically for that was that people found it safer. 
Mexico had become a really dangerous place to be a migrant because of control, territorial control by organized crime that was preying on migrants, like kidnapping them to require ransoms from their families in the United States or forcibly recruiting them into organized crime or into sex trafficking. In the case of the women, there was a high level of rape and assaults and attacks. So people who couldn't pay for other safer forms of transportation with a coyote or a pollero, you know, with the trafficker, joined these caravans because they had more visibility and they had more safety. But this presented a new challenge to the Mexican state and to the Mexican civil society as well with how to provide housing and food and uh, take care of these people as they were coming up through the country. And at first the Mexican government responded by offering humanitarian visas and free transit so they wouldn't have to face dangerous situations. But then later, when the caravan came up, it was used by Donald Trump to create this image of there's an invasion on our southern border. Look at these huge numbers of people who are trying to get into the United States, who are going to take your job, who are going to become criminals in your communities. A whole series of lies that uh, was facilitated by the fact that this caravan was so much bigger than groups that we had seen previously. There were a couple more caravans that came up, and then uh, there was a series of threats by the Trump administration toward the Mexican government, saying, if you don't do something to stop this, we're going to close the border, we're going to uh, impose tariffs on Mexican imports, a whole uh, there were a number of other things, but those were the two major threats that caused the Mexican government to take a different tack on immigration. Since then, what we've seen, unfortunately, has been a crackdown in Mexico on Central American migrants, not just Central Americans. There are also flows from Africa and from Haiti, Cuban, Venezuelan migrants, but particularly Central Americans, to create a system of contention and detention and control that's very similar to the to what we see in the United States, which has been universally condemned as violation of human rights. So, would you say it's the case that, as a as an asylum seeker from Central America, you could apply for asylum in Mexico, but it's perceived to be not safe, and that it would be safer to to apply in the U.S. Yeah, that's another one of the important changes when you ask about changes because. When it was labor mobility, people just went across uh, looking for jobs. <clears throat> But lately, when the violence became so bad in Central America and more women and children were migrating, uh, they began to to not try to sneak across the border, but to go across the border and to formally request asylum in the United States because so many of them had a good case for it. You know, many people were given 24 hours to leave their homes because of a direct threat from, from very violent gangs. Um, that meant that 
we had this, you know, this other new phenomenon, which was asylum seeking both in the United States, which is continues to be where the majority of people want to seek asylum. But as conditions have gotten worse, there's a larger number seeking asylum in Mexico as well. This has been going on for a couple of years where we saw shelters having to create new wings, so to speak, to shelter people for longer periods of time because they weren't just passing through. If they had an asylum request, they needed someplace to stay for the months that it would take Mexico to, to process that. Uh, the problem is, in both places, that there are these huge backlogs of several thousand cases and that there are huge waits of, of three to six months or more for an asylum case to go through. In the United States, it's also true that the majority are denied. So we have people just waiting around without really being able to work, without someplace to stay in detention centers. In Mexico, in the South now, there's, there's big riots, basically, and, and there have been confrontations between the Africans and the Haitians that are being held there in really bad conditions and the authorities, while at the same time there doesn't seem to be a concerted effort to just get these things, these cases processed so these people can be free and can be productive uh, members of society wherever they are. In the United States, they're doing everything possible to completely close the door on asylum, which would mean probably that there are going to be more cases in Mexico as well. Mexico doesn't have a problem in necessarily in absorbing these people and integrating these people, but right now at least it has a serious problem in processing the requests. And so that leads us on to the US, uh, the US-Mexico agreement, because they have a recent agreement on asylum, isn't that right? So I think this yeah. part of it? Except that none of these are agreements. Right. Everything that's been done in the United States that has to do with asylum has been presented as a unilateral decision, and it hasn't even gone through Congress. The, the Trump administration is using rule changes and executive orders to close down any possibility whatsoever of asylum in the country, despite the fact that people are fleeing this increasingly violent and threatening situation in Central American countries. So they've got uh, the more recent one, you can see them eroding asylum rights all down the line. They uh, initiated a program called Remain in Mexico, where first of all you get to the border. This is the general sequence of events. So say you are a Honduran family, you've had to leave your home. You make it through Mexico, which is a, a very, very difficult journey, um, and you get to Tijuana, and uh, you have to register, and the Mexican government is, is creating and managing these lists despite the fact that, you know, it's not a Mexican government problem. But anyway, there's a process called metering, which means that the United States government will only accept like two to three, you know, a very, very small number of people to cross the border and request asylum every day. So there's thousands here waiting and like a couple passing over the border every day. So it just keeps accumulating and they call that metering. It's a specific um, procedure that is meant to deter people from 
us pro from applying from for asylum and reduce the numbers of people who actually make it. So first you have to wait many, many months to even go across the border, and then basically all they do is give you a court date. So then you have to wait many, many months more to be able to go across again and present your evidence and go to your court date and begin the hearing process to see if you'll be granted asylum or not. And sometimes you may have several court dates. And in the meantime, with the Remain in Mexico program, you're sent back to Tijuana where you don't necessarily have any place to live. You have no way to feed your family. There are gangs, some, in some cases, the same gang that you were fleeing in Honduras is present in Tijuana. Uh, and so you're afraid to even go outside during the day. This is a situation we've talked to a lot of people in Tijuana specifically about what they're facing and, and this is what they're facing. And then of course, in the end, your chances of actually being granted asylum in the United States are, are very, very low. There are people from Central America who've decided to just give up and go back even though they face a life-threatening situation and then it turns out they don't have any way to go back. The United States is no longer, uh, there are very few planes that are transportation that are deporting people and they're deporting Central Americans back to Mexico. They don't have the resources to get back to their home country. So we're creating this uh, hugely um, volatile situation in many of those border cities. And for those people, is there not an option to stay in Mexico? Yeah, they can request asylum in Mexico. And some of them, but uh, the ones I've talked to or many of the ones I've talked to who have decided to go back, it's because they figure, well, if I'm not going to be able to uh, be in a safe place uh, where I can work and send money home, I might as well be home. Mm. But mostly what they say is Tijuana is not safe for me. Mm. Mexico is not safe for me. And that's the irony of this latest decision, which is basically to declare all of Central America and Mexico uh, without a formal declaration, but a safe third country. Um, it's just not true that Mexico is safe for many Central Americans mm. who are coming up much less a place where they can find uh, you know, a way to feed their families and to, to integrate into society. If they had the proper policies to make sure that people had facilities to resettle in Mexico, they could, it's not a problem of not enough room or not enough jobs like Donald Trump says. It's just a problem of proper policies and also this aspect that some people, it, should, it has to be done on a case-by-case -case basis because some people really do face direct threats from gangs or, or other types of violence that, are, violence that are also present in Tijuana. And just finally, what's the uh, public opinion about, uh, like, are they favorable towards the asylum seekers and migrants within Mexico? It's been a concern because the, the downside to these larger caravans coming through and being more visible is that it began to provoke some anti-immigrant sentiment that we hadn't seen before in Mexico. What we what we what we see mostly is that uh, it depends a lot on the local authorities. Like there were some infamous statements that came out from a very anti-immigrant mayor of Tijuana, 
and from a couple local uh, villages that the caravan passed through. So it would vary widely. You know, they'd get to one place and people would come out with sandwiches and water and medical services and then they'd go to the next place and they'd be met with tear gas and hostility. There's a potential under this scenario, if the, especially if the government continues to treat migrants as a threat with this kind of rhetoric of contention rather than compassion, um, echoing policies in the United States, you know, there is a potential for, for that xenophobia to, to increase in Mexico, and it has somewhat. The, the history is that Mexico has accepted Central American migrants forever. It was famous for offering relief to refugees from the dirty wars in Central America in the 80s. Um, and that's, that's, like I say, historically been the response, but it's, it's a possibility that those kinds of negative attitudes could increase if there's a, the right kind of public education and different public policies that send a clear statement that migrants are beneficial to communities rather than a threat. You can find links to Laura Carlson's work in the episode description. You can also follow Talk Immigration on Twitter at TalkInMig. That was all for this time. Thank you very much for listening. Thank <laughs> you.